0: Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping. Before we kick off, I say housekeeping, I mean a little bit of me asking you to help us keep the house in order. We need you to click that link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise Join us, throw us the price of a cup of coffee and a scone once a month, and you'll be helping keeping this platform, the podcasts across the network going, mics on and conversations like the ones that you're about to listen to happening. Think about it as your bit of activism on a monthly basis. You are literally get putting us in a position where we can continue to platform and open a space for, for, for conversations that you don't get anywhere else, and perspectives that are very, very few and far between in the mainstream. So if you like what we do and you think it has value, help keep it going. Say it all the time, we have no ads, we have no sponsors, we rely on you. And you get lots of extras for that, including access to our entire back catalogue now of almost 1,290 podcasts, as well as the podcasts as quickly as I can turn them around, entirely plea-free. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, we really need your help. Thanks for listening, thanks for the support, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined on the podcast today by a colleague of mine from Maynooth University who has specialised her research in the area of climate, um, gender, intersectionality, um, and yeah, is actually co-teaches on one of the modules with me on climate change and social justice. Uh, Delighted to be joined by Vanessa Conroy. Vanessa, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rory. I'm very excited to be here. Great, great, great. That's always a good start anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa, Vanessa, we'll probably start in terms of, um, I suppose, a question, uh, which would be, um, what got you interested? And maybe it's a bit, like obvious, but what did get you interested in the area of climate um, and social justice and the intersection kind of between them, the connection between them?
2: Well, I think interestingly for social justice, I was a bit of like, you know, an internet activist for a while. Um, After I didn't finish secondary school, I dropped out in my fifth year and it was just kind of that space of going, okay, well, what do I do now? And I found myself actually falling into a lot of kind of social justice groups on social media, particularly on the website Tumblr. I don't know if people still discuss Tumblr at all, but it's kind of a micro blogging site. Okay. And basically I kind of got involved.
1: It's not where blogs. you throw your clothes into like, to drive
2: <laughs> It's interestingly, actually one of the few places left kind of on the internet where There's not kind of any kind of really strict verification rules. There's not any really strict rules on kind of the publication of certain forms of explicit media, which are kind of frowned upon on things like Facebook and Instagram and stuff. So it's a kind of an interesting medium to use in that it's very much so a not-for-profit type of platform, which are kind of very, Mm -hmm. very rare, I think, right now with the kind of Elon Muskification of social media that's occurring right now yeah but um I honestly found like just by accident falling into kind of very kind of social justice oriented kind of just groups on tumblr quite left-leaning groups on tumblr and to be honest a lot of my kind of education initially on these topics before I ever found it because I didn't come across it in my secondary schooling and basically I learned a lot about intersectionality about white privilege about kind of the gender sex divide and about a lot about the LGBTQI plus community and particularly about kind of those that are between the kind of those traditional binaries of gender. And I think strangely enough, climate change was, it's kind of, I was at an event with Friends of the Earth recently, a kind of just like a coffee morning kind of thing. Mm. And kind of the millennial and Gen Z generation were kind of talking about, oh, kind of for older groups, climate change is something that's kind of suddenly arrived on kind of the general discourse agenda but for younger people climate change has always just kind of been there yeah. kind of looming over and that when you were in school you're always told like you know recycling bins turn off the lights turn off computers when you're done try to cycle or walk to school and like those kind of behaviors were instilled in us and it was just always this kind of thing hanging over i think the general like kind of millennials particularly kind of younger millennials and now the gen z generation as well It's as it's always been there but it's whether the kind of whether it's people are engaged with it and i think more young people are definitely engaged with it now which is good but for myself actually kind of interacting with climate change and particularly in a sense of a kind of an environmental justice Uh, fashion in particular would have been in my undergraduate degree at Maynooth when I did my bachelor's degree in uh, anthropology, actually. This is where I kind of first came across it in a a module by Dr. Uh, Chandana Mathur. And um, there was one week, basically, where we explored kind of how water shortages in rural Bangladesh kind of impacted gender roles. And I thought that was a really interesting way of approaching the subject that I'd never thought about before. So that was kind of my first kind of dip into it. And then it would have been in my the environmental justice module with that taught by Sinead Mercier, which would have kind of been my big kind of eureka moment, I guess. uh the kind of the exploration of environmental justice and then taking that gender aspect and putting those two together. So it's quite recent, maybe in the last two or three years, but it's something that I've really kind of dived headfirst into now and I'm really, really invested in.
1: Yeah. And maybe you could kind of, I suppose, explain to listeners in terms of like, what is that? So some might know it, some might not, but what is that connection, I suppose, particularly between gender and environment or you know, something we discuss in the classes, you know, why is, why should, you know, justice and, envi- and concepts of social justice and environmental justice be included within addressing the climate issue?
2: Well, I think for starters, talking about kind of the fact that basically when we're kind of in the coming up to 2050 and the fact that basically we'll have to radically change a lot of the way a day-to-day life is lived in our institutions and in generally kind of our societal structures and like health and transport and education and energy use and so i think for a lot of us we've lived with these structures that haven't had inequality built into them for such a long time and feeling like well the what can we do we literally have to rip it up at the roots and start over but i think with the fact that we essentially have to reinvent a lot of the way that we do things now we have a real opportunity in creating kind of green transport green energy use green housing and so on and so forth where we can have the input of groups who might be marginalized or might be suffering from an oppression so for example women and girls which would be my kind of my area of research, but also considering, you know, the disabled community, LGBTQI plus people, the traveling community. And I think we are at a point where if we kind of miss the mark on this, then we're essentially just looking at our existing inequalities and painting over them with green paint and saying, well, the inequality is still there, but at least it doesn't emit carbon anymore. So I think there is a real opportunity. In that uh, I think more so this generation, particularly kind of Gen Z, are very aware of kind of structural inequalities, maybe in a way that previous generations weren't as immediately tuned into. And I think kind of living in the aftermath of the economic recession and kind of the really kind of growing um growth the growth of wealth inequality between kind of the top one percent and the rest of us i think it's a lot more evident for them and so i think when we're talking about bringing environmental justice and social justice together particularly maybe in countries in the global north we have an opportunity to maybe reinvent how we've done life to date and make it more accessible for everybody else And in terms of our obligations to maybe less developed countries in the global south, there's a real chance if policymakers and decision makers and so on are willing to take it to really do reparative work right and kind of take responsibility for the fact that the majority of emissions that are in our atmosphere right now that are causing climate change and that will continue to cause climate change for the next few decades or so, are from us during the industrial revolution and so there is a responsibility to kind of assist those countries whether that is through kind of adaptation to climate change that we can't stop right now or to a kind of loss and damage kind of mechanism where basically the richer countries in the global north like the likes of america and england and kind of particularly a lot of colonizing nations kind of in continental europe really take responsibility and basically financially assist countries in the global south and particularly it would be island nations where kind of ocean rise really is a risk in order to help those people either adapt or just kind of financial compensation, basically, for the damage that climate change has already done.
1: And of course, the you know, there's a number of things that come to that as well. The whole, you know, migration and mm-hmm. migration related to, you know, still ongoing impacts of colonialism and the the nature of our trade system, uh, you know, extraction of resources, you mm-hmm. know, the huge inequalities that are, created, you know, under our, you know, globalized capitalism that, you know, lead to such poverty and instill you know, stripping of resources from Africa, from other places. And um, the creation, of course, of migration flows as well, and the need to understand that we have both an obligation, responsibility, um, and a humanity response to, you know, support um, and include all of those who are fleeing uh, those situations, and that of course is an issue. Climate refugees is going to be an issue that's going to, yeah, uh, you know, a real, uh, issue that's going to increase. And of course, the concern is that in response, we're actually seeing this emergence of a, you know, a right wing anti-immigrant, and not just right wing, but being, you know, fueled in communities amongst, you know, people that, um, actually we need to build up the walls rather than mm-hmm. we have a global responsibility.
2: Exactly. And I think part of that is we do have this kind of narrative where it has become really an us versus them. And I think that does benefit certain people in that if we are kind of concerned with blaming each other, like, you know, those who are already oppressed, kind of the 90% who are like, you know, Dealing with the cost of living crisis, with climate change, with a housing crisis, with a health and mental health crisis and pitting them against like refugees, particularly those who are coming from war-torn countries or those who have been displaced by climate change, pitting these groups against each other. And basically that kind of allows really the powers that be to get away scoff-free or to kind of continue the status quo because they're watching basically us fight each other when really we have a common enemy and it is those at the top. And interestingly about climate uh, climate refugees and coming back kind of to the gender aspect of my work is that actually 80% of climate refugees, so those displaced by climate change, whether it's rising sea levels or whether an extreme weather event has kind of destroyed and destroyed a homeland or whether even if we're seeing in parts particularly in the middle east where you have heat so extreme that the human body can't physically survive or live in it 80 percent of those climate refugees are actually women and children so it's very it's a stark stark figure and there is a lot of kind of There's a lot of questions behind this. I think we still have to do a lot of digging into, but obviously a lot of it is to do with kind of existing gendered structural inequalities and how those particularly impact women and children. And we also have to explore kind of the particular gender danger that women are put in when they have to seek asylum or when they have to basically leave their homes. There's all kinds of risks about particularly sexual violence and human trafficking and so it is again that really that gendered experience even of just having to move the gendered experience of having to migrate or having to seek asylum and the fact that climate change as it currently exists and due to currently existing kind of inequalities in gender kind of exacerbates that kind of issue
1: yeah, I, I think that um, the way in which, you know, the, that gender lens is very, very, very important. And, you know, thing, that figure is very stark, you know, in terms of that 80% of those being displaced due to climate, you know, are women. Um, in terms of the Irish government, then, and Irish government policy, you've analysed um, the government's climate action plans. Uh, and what maybe you could give us a sense of your, I suppose, yeah, analysis of do you think, you know, are they sufficient and where do you think, how do they rate in terms of addressing those issues of social justice, uh, gender and intersectionality, those inequalities?
2: So, actually, in my own research, I kind of put a thematic analysis of kind of basically a keyword search really to start off in Climate Action Plan 2021. And that is the issue with analyzing climate policy. It's changing so, so often and the work needs to continuously be done. But I did put it under a header that I called the, that doesn't happen here ism of the problem. And it is a fact that gender and the fact that there is a gendered impact of climate change for women and girls it's mentioned in climate action plan 2021 and in the newest version 2023 which is like you know it's good to see that but it is largely referenced it's kind of largely talked about in reference to ireland's kind of international obligations particularly in seats and at the un's convention on climate change and obviously that work is incredibly important that ireland kind of puts in financial uh, financial work and just kind of people work into assisting maybe less developed countries and making sure that women in those countries really get a say in how their countries make the transition to carbon neutrality and to make sure that they get decision-making positions and a real seat at the table. But what the plans, both plans, are both basically missing the mark on is mentioning that gendered impact existing here in ireland and that's why i called it the that doesn't happen here ism of the problem and that it's talked about there is a gendered issue but that doesn't happen here not in ireland and i think it's an odd kind of like a reluctance to admit that existing inequality or the potential of that existing inequality when really in ireland we still do have a lot a long way to go still concerning gender inequality particularly violence on women in Ireland is still a huge issue. And these kind of existing structural issues in kind of combination with the policy work that's planned to do with climate change and the policy work that we'll still have to keep providing research on and the work that is yet to do in the run up to 2030 and 2050, there are gendered structural issues which need to be paid attention to for everybody to have a truly just transition where nobody gets left behind essentially and the fact that women are like half of the population of this country so if you make for example a new kind of transport system that doesn't pay attention to the particular gendered ways in which women travel or if we make a new maybe an energy system or if we're pedestrianizing parts of dublin city we need to pay attention to how women use these spaces and use these kind of facilities otherwise you have like great, you have a kind of a green and new piece of policy in place there, but it isn't entirely accessible or suitable for half of our population. And when you put it like that, it kind of makes you go like, well, geez, we like, you know, half of the population, that's a huge number of people. And if they can't really engage properly in the green transition, they either they get risk, they risk being left behind, or they don't engage properly with it because it's not
1: suitable for their needs. And, and could you give some, you know, I suppose examples of that maybe?
2: Well, kind of my area of choice, my big policy area of choice would be transport and how transport interacts with gender and with um, the climate change and basically the work we'll have to do, particularly in Ireland, where Climate Action Plan 2023 has essentially admitted that we needed an entire overhaul of the transport system as it exists in Ireland to meet yeah. any of our carbon obligations. ...due to the fact that it is so entirely constructed around the use of private cars. It's called, called a car-centric kind of system of transport. And there are two kind of really key important um goals that we need to meet... ...to make those 2030 and 2050 uh, carbon obligations. And that is the fact that they want one in the three private vehicles... ...to go from basically petrol diesel to electronic vehicles. And then also... To basically make sure that half of all of our journeys in this country are either walked or they're cycled or their public transport is used and so particularly when we're talking about public transport that is still kind of a big issue for women in that i think many people are aware of the fact that a lot of women don't they like, don't to like use public use. transport when it gets late due to this kind of there's honestly kind of quite validated fears about being assaulted, whether that is physically or sexually, there is fear of harassment and particularly a big issue and Transport Infrastructure Ireland did a really nice study on this. And one of those big issues is that final walk from your bus stop to your home or from your bus stop to the place where you're meeting your friends, maybe. And it's all this kind of really specifically gendered interactions that women will have with each other where they say, oh, text me. When you get home, will you turn on your location when you're in your taxi on the way home? And it is a huge thing, again, bringing it back to that issue of gendered, structural gendered violence in Ireland. And that is a big issue, and it's something that'll have to be considered when we're thinking about basically how we reinvent our transport infrastructure in this country. And interestingly enough, also in that study, it basically found that 95% of the women That they asked about, basically, do you feel like you need to use a car to do everything you need to do in a day? And 95% of women said, yes, they absolutely need a car to do the things they need to do on a day-to-day basis. And a big part of that is reproductive labor and caring work. And that is a big, big part of kind of this gendered interaction with the environment that women have
1: yeah and care is is a huge issue in terms of that the care responsibility and the gendered inequality around mm-hmm. care responsibilities and and you, you you know we've spoken about that before and you highlight that that whole issue of you know for example if you're even you know collecting children from school or um you know if you have a children child with additional needs you know or bringing them to you know services or supports and those extra things that this idea of you know, simply saying, oh, everybody should, you know, move to public transport when, you know, the accessibility of services and who will pay, who will take on the burden of that, you know, with increased uh, carbon costs and costs of, you know, transport that these issues have to be considered.
2: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And even when we take it thinking about that kind of intersectional aspect of it, when you think about disabled women, and the fact that I think Irish Rail have said in about two years time, we will finally have the first trains running in this country that have automatic ramps for wheelchair use. And it's basically, it makes you think like, why on earth haven't has it taken this long to get to this point? Yeah. And that is a big thing, particularly for mothers in wheelchairs who have to escort children around and we have figures like a lot of data on the fact that disabled people in this country are quite socioeconomically disadvantaged which yeah. means we lead to more of a tendency particularly for living in an urban area to use public transport it's, it tends to be those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds particularly women who will use public transport in urban areas and it's that combination of things it's being ha- it's, wondering, will I be able to get on this bus or on this train if I'm in a wheelchair and having to bring children in tandem with that if you are a parent. And it's all of these kind of accessibility issues which really kind of when you step back and kind of see the forest with the trees, it really makes you think about all of the work that we could really, really valuable work could potentially do when we're starting to essentially reinvent the entirety of transport infrastructure in Ireland and particularly that care work aspect in that if transport in this country does not become more care friendly then it continues that inequality and that accessibility issue continues and it does keep particularly women who in Ireland still carry out twice as much caring work as men we found out recently in research it keeps women from kind of using all of these kind of green, active and public forms of transport that will really be pushed on us in the coming years, if half of all of our journeys are to be kind of active transport journeys is the terminology that they use.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know, it does highlight, and it's similar in the area of housing, you know, that um, the whole issue of retrofitting and, you know, who lives in damp, cold homes um, and who can afford to retrofit, who can't um, and who pays you know, the cost and the burden of that and the impact of it. And as you say, you know, you describe really, really well, that issue of, you know, okay, we can, you know, reduce carbon consumption and, but inequality will just continue and in fact, actually worsen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that unless we, as you say, you know, reinvent and reimagine and recreate the economy and how we do things, that the danger is that actually, you know, you achieve your carbon targets um, while society becomes even more unequal.
2: That is, like, really it. It's the fact that because we're essentially stepping into uncharted territory now, we have existing inequalities which could potentially be worsened, and we have the scary possibility of entirely new green inequalities basically showing up, and one that I particularly think of is that transition from that push that will be kind of made from petrol diesel cars to electronic vehicles. Because we already kind of have an access issue in that yeah. those from kind of lower socioeconomic backgrounds are having a big issue and purchasing electronic vehicles. And I know there's, like, there's grants, there's kind of incentives for people to purchase those vehicles. But the people who can purchase those kind of upfront are those who can kind of afford to make those kinds of moves and have that kind of disposable income to hand already. Whereas the fact that these vehicles will be cheaper to run in the long term compared to those kind of petrol diesel cars that we have now, is something that we should really be trying to make sure that those in lower socioeconomic backgrounds can afford. Because if we know that many, many women in this country, 95% of women in that study need to use a car basically to do their day-to-day work and particularly care work, what was called the kind of the mobility of care in the, academia, in the academic sense in that women will tend to do like they all have a commute, but it won't just be from point A to point B. It will be, well, if point A is home, then maybe I'm dropping a kid off at school. Maybe I am picking up some groceries. Maybe I'm dropping another child off at a sports club. And then point B finally is work and it is the fact that women say they need cars particularly to carry out that kind of care oriented mobility and the fact that particularly lone mothers in this country but women overall tend to be more socioeconomically disadvantaged compared to men if we start to push these kind of taxes on petrol diesel cars those kind of taxes that are too ins- like basically change the behaviors of the population and encourage them to purchase an electronic vehicle, really who gets hurt if we're not paying proper attention to these gendered kind of ways that we use transport and existing kind of gendered access to transport issues that exist. And it's so basically, if we start to pay attention to gender right now, where we're still kind of in the early stages of writing up those policies of implementing the taxation on these vehicles and encouraging and creating the grants to make the swap over to electronic vehicles. If we pay attention to gender now and intersectional issues now, we can really, we have a good opportunity to really do it right. And it's the fact that the policy in Ireland, the climate action plan basically updates as we get new research and information. If we have decision makers who have a really kind of kind of who are open to really putting in that work we can have that policy updated in a year or in two years to pay proper attention to these kind of intersectional needs and these gendered needs
1: yeah absolutely and and it's a very good point that you know the, the plans and the policies themselves can be updated and and you know are being um and the the other thing that comes into my head is that you know you mentioned in the plan in your analysis like for example that aviation emissions aren't included at all in Which the government's is? plan that and you start to look at you know where where emissions come from and the fact that it's the top you know one percent, top ten percent who actually consume most of the carbon and um in terms of the lifestyles, the consumption and Mary Murphy in her work and her new book, which is coming out, um, also talks, you know, about this, about the whole issue of, you know, consumption and who consumes and therefore who is emitting the carbon. Um, and it is, of course, you know, the the consumption of the top and that the, there's this whole narrative around, you know, everybody has to take responsibility and everybody has to reduce their level of consumption when an actual fact, it is the top who have to really make the biggest adjustments. Uh, and reductions and that in fact that there's ways in which at a certain level you can increase consumption and, and when you talk about consumption it's not like are you buying more things but in terms of you know um materials like housing conditions you know care support um and you know for those at the bottom you know or at the middle that actually could increase and this idea of how how things are re- redistributed and how we use resources really needs to be brought into question. But that isn't in the Irish government's climate <laughs> action. Well it's not. <laughs> and it's also interesting when we talk about
2: how aviation isn't counted in these emissions. An important one that I feel like people don't talk about enough is the fact that military emissions are not included in that plan either. Yeah. And the fact that military emissions particularly, I mean, not as kind of a huge kind of bugbear here as it would be in the likes of, for example, the United States, but the huge emissions that military, any kind of military activity causes, and not only that, but more than likely accompanying it is human misery, to be honest, and the outright destruction of the environment when, you know, bombs are dropped, when certain forms of submarine and sonar equipment are used in our oceans. There is a lot of kind of really environmentally destructive and human destruction that is brought through um, military, basically military, everyday use. The fact that we don't count those emissions is kind of also a big question when we're the kind of conversation going on about Ireland's neutrality and the fact that the government might be basically considering, reconsidering that neutrality. And it's, you know, if we decide to kind of bow What does that mean for Ireland's existing carbon footprint, even though those emissions aren't officially counted? What does that mean for both kind of our place, as you know, kind of refusing to kind of be a part of that kind of military kind of warfare scene, but also what does it mean for our continued contribution to essentially one human misery But two, also the environmental ramifications of basically agreeing to be a part of kind of the military industrial complex. And there's already the kind of issue of allowing U.S. kind of military planes to land at Shannon Airport. And does that really make Ireland neutral? But kind of moving away from this area a little and back to what you were discussing about that issue of our it is kind of yes the kind of the one percent and the wealthiest in ireland are the ones who are kind of who are consuming the most carbon and it's interesting when we think about things like purchasing electrical cars or retrofitting it's those people who have the access to that stuff immediately because of the disposable income but they're also at the same time existing as kind of the highest emitters like you said and It is basically, we kind of risk creating this kind of thing where we have a lot of people in lower socioeconomic groups, those who are the most hurt by climate change and particularly policy, which fails to pay attention to the kind of class impacts that climate change could have. We have these people who are basically, we'll have kind of upper class people looking down on them and saying oh, look, you don't drive an electric car and you don't have a retrofitted house. You're not using your reusable keep cup. How dare you? You're a bad green citizen. And that's really kind of an us versus them. We really don't want to create because we don't want to essentially demonize those who can't afford to participate because basically green technologies and green lifestyle choices have been priced out of their reach. And it is the fact that those who are in the lower classes, lower socioeconomic classes, also tend to be the ones who are the most engaged with environmental activism. So it's interesting that we have a group of people who really, really want to participate and know that making these changes are kind of key to like, you know, reducing that potential impact of climate change on them, even if it's something as little as you know. And a lot of people feel like, you know, silly going like, Well, why is sorting my recycling or using a paper straw instead of a plastic straw? Like, you know, what does it do in the grand scheme of things? But it's the fact that we have priced out basically green lifestyle choices from the people who want to use them the most and who will benefit from them the most due to, for example, with retrofitting reduced energy bills with electric vehicles, yeah. kind of the reduced maintenance cost of those vehicles later down the line. And, and, and of course,
1: like it, it does come back to as well the whole issue of, you know, the, the way the economy is structured in terms of, you know, consumption of and, and purchasing, you know, and the mm-hmm. the you know the shopping um constant drive of, you know, products to be sold by corporations. Um and the constant, you know, the inbuilt obsolescence of products, mm-hmm. the you know, failure to create products that are easily be easily fixable, you know, parts to be replaced. And it's across the production system because the entire economy is based on continued and growing consumption um of material products and the selling of those, the marketing of those, and um, and the and therefore at the heart of the economy is a problem, which is we don't value things like care we don't value the the economic you know productivity that comes from that we place all the economic productivity on how much profit can be gained from selling products and not you know what are the things that matter and and so there's a fundamental problem i think at the heart of of the kind of idea that you can somehow green um in a way you know capitalism
2: that that is exactly true And something that continuously kind of comes up in particularly kind of feminist green circles and in eco-feminist circles is the fact that we have all of this talk about particularly green jobs and the green economy, like getting people into retrofitting or getting people into manufacturing green energy, when care work all along has been a low carbon job area. Care work has always kind of been green work. And in my analysis, of the Climate Action Plan, I feel it's a real missed opportunity to include care work as part of those kind of potential package of green jobs, because one, it is, it's always been really green work. It's always been low carbon work. Two, it's essential to our continued, basically our existence, our interdependence on each other, caring communities and really strong communities are re- ones that you'll find are a lot more resilient to kind of things like climate change and thirdly um, it's basically the fact that if care work is seen even in a kind of a way as kind of part of the green economy we have an opportunity to value that work the way it should be valued if we put green work I mean care work kind of in the same category as those who are going to retrofit homes or those who are creating kind of our new green energy system or those who are kind of kind of recreating our peatlands and bogs to be maintained for things like green tourism then you know even though we are still kind of talking about economic terms we have an opportunity to see this is green work so why isn't it paid and as valued as other green job areas are but coming back to your point about the ability to green capitalism that is a really good point too and particularly Kate Raworth would talk about basically how economists and the entire field of economics has been so built around this idea of continuous and unending kind of accumulation and growth and the profit And the fact that that idea isn't based in reality at all. And that the sources that kind of, that basically create the commodities and products that create profit and are bought and sold in the system of capitalism, those are finite resources. And basically every year we hit this overshoot day where basically we use up all of the resources that the earth can kind of regenerate in a year. We hit that earlier and earlier every year. And in Ireland, that date is in April. It's in this month, and wow. so basically, if everybody on Earth lived like the average Irish citizen, we would use up all of the resources, uh, basically all the resources on the planet by April.
1: Wow, that that is stark. That is really, really stark in terms of it, and and it's yeah, it's it's so important to have this you know, conversation to highlight and, and focus on, on that inequality lens because, you know, we're seeing the rise of political movements and, and, and you know the 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 right included in this, but, you know, even the so called, you know, the rural TDs who are, you know, against the, you know, the, the the Greens and what is being done. But this rise of, you know, the Gilets jaunes in France, you know, the part of um you know the the, the movements and, and kind of rise in different forms of even like Trumpism, part of it was playing on this idea that, oh, you know, the climate change has just been pulled pushed by, you know, Bill Gates and the liberals to, you know, keep the elites in power. And it's, you know, nothing about, you know, we don't really need to do it. And um they're trying to take away, you know, what you, you know, your cars and your whatever from you. And they're playing into that, the real you know, concerns and fears and inequalities that people have that what will climate change mean when their their lives are actually going to become worse and they're shit already. Um, And how do you think we challenge that and offer an alternative politics of hope that isn't green neoliberalism?
2: I think for starters, with these things, like particularly like the rise of kind of Trumpism and kind of like, you know, right-leaning political ideologies that are playing into this thing of, oh, climate change isn't real, or like you said, it's being pushed by like, you know, neoliberal lefties. It's the fact that companies like Shell and BP Oil have had the research done since the 80s and 90s, and they know, they've known that climate change and that emitting a load of carbon into the atmosphere would basically dramatically increase the planet and would create kind of dangerous shifts in our planetary climate. It is the fact that basically the narrative is pushed that, you know, on basically consumers or they're kind of these kind of people who tend to lean into right wing ideology and right wing ideas about climate change, is that as long as the status quo remains the same, they can still keep making money by basically drilling for oil or drilling for gas or taking up the last of the coal. And so it's a narrative they know. They've known for a long, long time. That's why the idea of the carbon footprint comes into existence is that it takes a structural issue and places the onus of it on the individual. That, oh, you're not driving an electric car. You're not using a reusable keep cup. It puts that problem on the individual. And I still think that's a really kind of not toxic idea, but it's an idea that's really stuck with people. And I think it's going to take basically education, a lot of education and I think a lot of the information on climate change and kind of the ideas around um environmental justice and kind of how we can change things, there's still the messaging is still very poorly broadcast, I think, to the general public. Um I was at a DCU's kind of climate conference the other day and I think an important point brought up uh, they had a panel basically with figures from the media and I think a really important point still that we kind of haven't taken the kind of opportunity is is connecting those kind of climate change issues to problems that are happening in the here and now because it was basically said that in terms of news, people who consume news want kind of local problems brought to them first, and they want the now issues brought to them first. And climate change is not basically broadcast as local, it's broadcast largely on a global scale. And it's also seen still as a problem that's kind of not happening now. It's going to be, oh, maybe a few decades down the line, it will be very, very bad. And I think we're really missing an opportunity in kind of making those connections. For example, the impact of the climate crisis on the housing crisis and how those two are interlinked or the impact yeah. of the climate crisis on the energy crisis or the cost of living. And one of the kind of easiest ones that's happening right now is the kind of fruits and vegetable shortages that we're seeing, which is directly linked to kind of issues with normal seasonal growing weather in continental Europe and that's why and also additionally the price of running those greenhouses in order to grow that produce and so those are two kinds of like you know you've got the energy crisis and you've got the cost of living and you've got the availability of food and climate change links basically all three of them and it's the fact that it's not basically being discussed that way in the general media is the real missed opportunity for people to kind of make those links and see how climate change does impact on their everyday lives. And I think also another obvious part of the problem is that we have a Green Party who are very kind of inspiring in terms of kind of their action on climate change. I think we like... Uh, know- here,
1: I'm waiting for Tony now to jump <laughs> in. <into> the fence.
2: <laughs> I think we see... The types, like, you know, we see AOC over in America and we see kind of her, like, you know, big Green New Deal. And we're kind of looking at maybe the likes of Eamon Ryan and thinking, oh, why can't our one be like that? And obviously, even like very recently in the news, basically Eamon Ryan saying that the Green Party might possibly do a little kind of step back on the party's view of LNG, which is liquefied natural gas that's a big issue and also the fact that the free school bus service will be ending in the next academic year is another big issue and a really big missed opportunity because if we've had a school bus system running before that was kind of free for the point of use they said it's essentially kind of a supply and demand issue and that we need more buses and we need more drivers but if we want more public transport journeys to be taken by people then why are we taking away a mechanism that makes it really, really accessible, particularly to build those habits at a very young age for children to take the bus to school every day? Why are we making that less accessible for people who could really use it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, um, the, the issue as well in terms of the media, it's, it's an interesting point, you know, but that, you know, making it real and, you know, it is becoming more and more real. It will be, but it still comes back to, I think the issue that the framing of it all, and, you know, i would be very critical of the Green Party in, you know, they make the, oh, we're in government. And so therefore at least we're progressing, you know, whatever level of green policies, and it would be worse if we weren't here. But, you know, you have to step back and go, are you serious? Because if we highlight that one of the main problems is the way in which the economy is structured, but but in Ireland and globally, in terms of this constant, uh, you know, consumption of materials based on, as you say, profit and and you know commodities, that that in actual fact, the real, you know, say all the talk about climate change should be about how are we dramatically changing our economy to reduce the materials we're consuming, and that will only come when corporations and companies change the whole model of how we do things and the idea that individuals somehow can be responsible for changing that the only way we can really change it is by changing our politics that demands and regulates economies and companies in a completely different way and uh, change our entire economy how we redistribute resources because when you say like aviation isn't even included in our emissions you just go sure it's farcical.
2: Exactly. Al. But you know, Rory, the businesses are planting trees with their carbon offsets. So that's you have to give them a break, you
1: know. <laughs> oh, uh, That's true. That's true. They're planting trees in um, where? Cutting down rainforest somewhere and replanting other mm. trees. Or, something.
2: <laughs> or they're not planting native trees here. So we're just planting trees we can make money off of later on there in the line. And I think also just on that note of like natural kind of like Basically, car- like you know, climate change and green, and positive decisions as part of something that's kind of like you know a business investment. That is again another issue where we're trying to paint paint capitalism green. And there is really still, and I think it'll be a huge kind of ideological, language, cultural change that we'll need to go through when we're thinking about how basically we as humans see the natural world. And particularly um, the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity Laws, they came out with a recommendation to, to enshrine the rights of nature in the Irish Constitution. And that basically means giving a thought to nature and the fact that it has the right to flourish and perpetuate and to not be basically polluted or destroyed. And that, I think, putting it into the Constitution is one thing. But there will need to be basically an ideological shift about how we talk about the natural world. In that, basically, if you own land, you're welcome to do whatever you want with the natural kind of resources, and even using the word resources is kind of dicey when we're talking about language, but you're free to cut the grass to about a, like, you know, half an inch. You're free to rip up all that grass and just tarmac the whole thing. We're free to destroy basically the nature that's on that land because you own it. And it's basically, it'll be a radical rethinking of our relationship basically with nature and particularly eco-feminist thought would point out that this dualism that's been basically created of humanity and then nature and humanity existing above or outside of nature. That's still a huge issue and it's basically inscribed into our law and it's largely been inscribed into basically how we discuss nature. Like when we think about things like natural capital or basically nature as commodities or if we're talking about, you know, the issue with culture right now in that we basically have trees planted as cash crops and eventually it's like we need to plant a certain percentage of trees that will be for profit, that we can export for profit. And the fact that the value of trees is being seen in that way, rather than the fact that trees have a right to exist basically as part of the natural world, and that forests, when we do them right, are really important sources of biodiversity and really good carbon sinks.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. So the tree huggers were right all along.
2: The tree huggers, the Chipko movement, who originated the term tree hugger in India. A group of women activists, by the way.
1: I know, I read the story. I was giving you the (laughs) (laughs) cue. Go for it. Explain. It's a great story.
2: So basically, oh, I wouldn't know the year off the top of my head, unfortunately, but... These groups like, you know, indigenous groups in India, there were groups coming in basically enabled by the Indian government to tear down forests in particular areas, again, for profit, to create land for agriculture, basically. And whilst the loss of the forest did impact, obviously, members of both genders in that group or members of all genders in that group, the women were particularly impacted because of their need, the kind of the forest and the way it enabled their caring work so they would get you know firewood to keep basically their homes warm and also the fact that the loss of the forests and the loss of the tree cover really impacted on the water supplies in the area which they also needed obviously for drinking water for cooking and for bathing and so eventually they thought basically going to the government and appealing wasn't doing anything so they thought well we've got to basically we've got to do something otherwise they're going to cut everything down And so you basically had these women in the face of these huge machines, these huge logging machines and loggers, basically linking arms around trees and hugging them. So that, you know, if they wanted to cut the trees down, they would have to basically, they would have to essentially kill the women to get to them. And so that's essentially, and that, and then with more government negotiations, this is basically how they saved their forest in that area. And so basically the word tree hugger that we get in a kind of, a semi kind of derogatory or like, you know, yeah. mocking term for environmental activists comes from really important environmental activism work done by women. <laughs>
1: brilliant. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Listen, Vanessa, absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Um, and we have these chats at work as well, and it's great. Um, uh, And I just want to, Tony, uh, as a producer, has sent in some really uh, serious propaganda. He says, Eamon Line is our hero. <laughs> that He's committed to LNG infrastructure, whatever that means.
0: He has. He said we'll have LNG infrastructure There's not necessarily a terminal, and 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 we know he sent a five-person team off to to tell the Swiss grannies that the Irish the Irish state says no to a clean and safe environment than the EU. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So he's playing an absolute blinder. Keep yeah. voting. Want green? Vote greeny blue. Exactly <laughs> all the way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but listen, Vanessa, I have to say it's uh, yeah, really interesting and. Um, just to encourage if anybody's interested, we Vanessa, you did our masters in in social policy um and rights, and mm-hmm. there our masters in the Department of applied social Studies in Maynooth is open yes. for people if they want to consider doing a master's um in it, you found it good. what else can you say except exactly we-
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do quite a, I'm here today It's like you know I'm like you know an expert i guess an expert now on kind of particularly the climate gender intersection in ireland and an irish policy so and i think even doing the work inside academia and taking it outside of academia as well and making sure that we like you know annoy our politicians a lot to pay attention and we do need for anybody who wants to do that kind of work we need a lot more data on environmental justice issues in ireland so i encourage you all to get involved in any way that you can
1: (laughs) great great vanessa listen thanks so much enjoyed that Um, And, yeah, listeners, as always, we are an independent podcast produced by Tortoise Track Media. If you can become a patron, uh, help us to keep this going. We have no ads um, and we are completely reliant. And thank you so much to all those who are patrons. We really, really appreciate it. Um, And as well in terms of the eviction uh ban you can go over to uplift.ie um and if you are facing eviction you can fill out the the map there we're continuing to highlight and we'll have more events coming up on that it was that incredible event organized by Ifa Welby uh Fela Housing um and Claire down in Ennis it was a really inspiring event um which had Claire Katu thrash Threshold Threshold Jesus Thra- threshold and uh the Doris uh, women's Refuge there and I was really uh, it was really shocking to hear actually the, the lady from the Women's Refuge speaking about how um, that because they can't find housing to move women out of the refuge that essentially they can't take people in, women in and therefore women are in situations of domestic abuse and violence and they can't leave because there's not refuge places And it really is, you know, another horrific example of the impact of the housing crisis. Um, So that was a really, really important event. And uh, and there's ongoing work around the country. We're hoping to do the fail of housing elsewhere as well. So listen, thank you so much. Thanks to everyone, uh, as always, for sharing the podcast around. Please, if you can, share it around on social media. Send us in your comments. We'd love to hear them. Uh, Thanks so much. We'll talk to you all very soon.